Well, ladies, we are living in times that are going to make the history books. And most of us would say, I can't wait for the coronavirus to be in the history books and not part of our everyday life. We all long for the day that it will be history. But as we think about the novel coronavirus, I think it, it makes me realize that the coronavirus has raised many issues beyond health issues. Um, I think that it's raised some challenges for us to consider, especially for us as believers, and just for normal people in general about respect for others. We walk into Walmart, or we go into a restaurant, or we go into public places, even passing people on the sidewalk, and those, those sort of issues bubble up. Do we respect others? It's raised conversations about constitutional rights. And is this an infringement on my rights to, to wear a mask or not wear a mask? And there's lots of political conversations about government overreach and government authority and what they can and cannot tell us to do. I think it, it challenges all of us on a personal level to really look inside and ask ourselves, what accommodations am I willing to make to protect myself and to, to, to protect myself and to protect others? And what is my comfort level for engagement and interaction with others? COVID has brought on many, many choices that a year ago we would have not ever considered were choices we would have to make to go or not go to the grocery store. Do I do pickup or do I do delivery? Do we dine in or do we carry out? Do we choose cloth or N95? And instead of traditional or contemporary services when we go to church, the choices might be masked or unmasked. And I've actually seen that on a website. So all those changes in recent months bring up for me what I think I'm labeling as a COVID continuum, a COVID continuum. And on the COVID continuum, way on one extreme, we have the folks that would, I call them the live and let live people. These were the folks that were pounding on the door of, of uh, McDonald's back in March saying, I want my Big Mac, open up and give me my Big Mac. And, and they didn't like any of this shutting down business. And then way on the other side, I call that the hunker down crowd. And those are the ones that still today in October wear a hazmat suit to go get their mail. And, uh, and they have grocery delivery, and when the guy leaves it on the door, they go out wearing their suit with their tongs and carry it into the garage and leave the stuff in there for three days before they bring it in the house. Now, obviously, that's all hyperbole to kind of make my point. But there are, there are those two extremes, and the reality is that most of us fall on the line somewhere in between those two extremes. Uh, what I will say is I'm not going to tell you where is the appropriate place to fall on that line, but I think wherever you fall, it certainly is an opportunity to extend grace and love and kindness and mercy to people that fall on a different place on the line. No advice about where you should be, though. Your choice, though, when we think about it, wherever you are on that line, that where you have planted yourself that becomes your basis for, de for determining what is over or what is underreacting. Our position and our perspective becomes the basis for what is or is not appropriate. Now, that may be subtle or unconscious, but I think we all really kind of land there. Whether we think about it or whether we want to admit it, we sort of make ourselves the standard for what is not enough or what is too much, or what is acceptable, 
or what is not acceptable. The choice that we have made becomes the basis for evaluating everybody else's choice. And then when we understand that and see where we are with the coronavirus, I think we also might begin to have a little bit of an understanding about where we stand on the line and of what is or is not acceptable behavior when it comes to sin. What we would decide is sinful and what we would decide is, is perfect perfection and holiness. Our choices become the basis maybe for evaluating everybody else's choices and their behaviors and actions and attitudes when it comes to determining what is acceptable and what is sinful. Whatever I find acceptable, anything to the right of that, we might say, well, that's just legalistic. And we might say, well, everybody is human. And so that might be how we rationalize that television show that we want to watch. And we just say, well, you got to watch something and it's okay. Wherever I stand on the line, everybody to the left of me, we might say, well, I can't believe she watches that. That's just borderline pornographic. So you see what I'm saying? Wherever we are, we use that as the basis to evaluate where everybody else is. Well, I'm sure that those might not be conscious thoughts that we go through. They might be unconscious attitudes that we've adopted. We can always find somebody standing at a different place on the line than where we are. We can always look to the left or look to the right and feel a tad bit or maybe even a lot superior. When we take that horizontal look, we'll always be able to find somebody that we're doing a little bit better than or somebody that's just not quite getting it right like where we are. And we know that always and ultimately, instead of looking horizontal to assess where we are, we need to get vertical. Ladies, judgment is the topic of Romans chapter 2. I want to invite you to stand with me in honor of God's holy word. I'm going to read the first 12 verses aloud of the book of, of the chapter, first 12 verses of, the, of chapter 2 of the book of Romans. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does, does evil, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and praise for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. Ladies, thank you for standing in honor of God's word. You may be seated. And would you just pray with me as we begin? Oh, Lord God Almighty, the book of Romans is already so very rich and so very convicting. God, we're, we're just into chapter 2, and already our hearts feel like pincushions. 
Lord, we want to be grown-up women of God who receive the truth that you have for us. And so I ask today for myself and for all the women gathered here and all the women who are listening that we would be open, that you would open our hearts and minds that verses that even are very familiar would take on new shades of meaning as we see this in a, in a brand new light. Give us a freshness. Lord, convict us where we need to be convicted. And may your word not only teach us, may your word challenge us to know you better. And may what we learn today and what we learn throughout all of the book of Romans challenge us to be more committed followers of you, Jesus, and more committed to live out the truth that you have for us. These topics that we are unpacking in Romans 1 and 2 and and then chapter 3 next week all deal with sin, and it's such a challenging topic, Lord. Would you give us a healthy perspective? Would you let us look at this through your eyes of love? And as we conclude this teaching and all of Romans each week, Father, would we be able to declare that you are great, you are holy and mighty and powerful, but you are also good. You are merciful and loving and compassionate. It is in your name we pray. Amen. Well, the Pharisees are standing there with Paul. You could almost see it. Paul's writing from Corinth, but he's writing to the Pharisees now in chapter 2. And you could almost see it as if he was delivering this message to them in person. And you could almost see the Pharisees as he was finishing up Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32 that we studied last week. You could almost hear them cheering and clapping and applauding and nodding their heads. And if, and if they were undignified enough to yell amen, those Pharisees would have, yelling, have yelled amen as Paul was recounting all those sins that we looked at and studied when we went through Romans 1, 18 to, 30, we, 18 to 32 in the previous lesson. But now Paul's pronouns are even shifting. Instead of they and them, now he's using the pronoun you. And he's speaking specifically. He's turning now to the Jews. And he lays out how God judges as he addresses their guilt. Not just Jew and Gentile. Um, And even though in chapter 1 he is addressing the Gentiles, and now in chapter 2 he's addressing the Jews, I think the best way for us as women in the 21st century that want to glean from this passage is to think about God addressing the bad girls in Romans chapter 1, and now he's speaking to all the good girls, the church ladies, in Romans chapter 2. We church ladies need to listen up just as much as the Jews in the first century need to listen. Now, I want to make it clear that Paul is in no way contradicting his righteousness by faith teaching in Romans 1, 16 and 16 and 17, when we saw that passage, and he, he talks about that here in part of we read, Paul's teaching thread about righteousness by faith is woven throughout all of his teaching and writing. He's not contradicting himself. But this message for these smug, self-righteous Jews then, and of course the legalists still today, basically is saying, you want God to judge you based on your works? Well, you have at it, and let's see how that works out for you. You want a boss instead of a loving father? You want to earn wages based upon what you do? Go ahead and go for it, and let's see how that unfolds. I love what John Stott said in the message of Romans. He says this, and he summarizes so well the attitude of, how the attitude of the Jews can be the attitude of us as well. He says this, We work ourselves up into a state of self-righteous indignation over the disgraceful behavior of the other people, while the very same behavior seems not nearly so serious when it is ours rather than theirs. 
wherever we stand on the line, it's very easy to look at what somebody else does. I read somewhere one time this, that uh, in, in a book that th this guy said, we tend to judge other people by their actions and we judge ourselves by our intentions. Those to the left of us on that sin continuum are shameful sinners. And those to the right of us, we declare them legalistic. But instead of sorting ourselves out as Jew and Gentile, maybe the better comparison as we unpack Romans 2 is to think about the moral and the immoral or the religious and the irreligious, the good girls and the bad girls. We come to the sobering reality as we study the book of Romans that really and truly we're all bad girls. We are all immoral. We are all unholy. We are all sinners. And that's, that's the bad news. We talked about that in our small groups today. One lady in my group was, was sharing that for years. She looked at the sin of adultery, and it, it just bothered her so much. And she just had no tolerance or patience for people that would commit adultery. And then just the Lord sort of hit her upside the head, as he does all of us, with whatever is that thing that we just think is the worst thing, and began to reveal to her that it's an attitude of the heart. And, and any time we've looked at, at someone else's husband, and, and even maybe looked at someone else's husband and thought, well, I wish my husband were, were more like that, or I wish my husband would do that. We're all guilty. And I think that's what we come to the place of realizing as we study through completely. We get beyond the second grade Sunday school lesson, and we start to peel off like layers of an onion all the depth of understanding that God has for us here. There's bad news, ladies. We're all bad, but there's also good news. And the good news is our key verse of Romans, and we're going to just keep coming back to it. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This is our key book for the entire book of Romans. The good news is that we are declared good. We are declared righteous in Christ. The bad news is that we are so bad, we can't manufacture or produce it on our own. In fact, we are so bad that the only way we can get righteous is if it is given to us as a gift. We cannot create it on our own. The righteousness that we receive is a gift from God by faith in Jesus Christ. It's faith plus nothing. But the Judaizers... Those Pharisees in the first century, they were so very proud of their morality, their keeping of the law. They found their identity all wrapped up in their good works. They were so pleased with themselves and so arrogant and so pompous and so smug about checking off the list. You know, in Romans 1.18 last week, we talked about godlessness. And we learned that godlessness doesn't mean you're an atheist. It doesn't mean you don't believe in God. Godlessness means that you just disregard God. I love what Oswald Chambers says about sin. He says that sin is not just wrongdoing. It is deliberate and emphatic independence of God. It is rebellion. Godlessness means that you are rebelling against God. You are stiff-arming him. And so when we studied godlessness last week, in terms of the Gentiles and, and all those sinful behaviors that we put up on the screen, that's an elevation of self. That's an attitude that says, I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to 
be where I want to be and think what I want to think, and, and it's all about me. It's basically a worship of self. We learned that godlessness leads to wickedness, and we looked at the sobering, convicting, nauseating list of all those sins that Paul laid out in Romans 1, 18 to 32. We saw how godlessness, eliminating God in the vertical relationship, leads to wickedness in our interpersonal relationships. And we saw that downward spiral of sin. Paul was speaking to the Gentile sinner who basically says, I don't need God. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to live my own life. I'm going to live and let live. That's self-worship. Well, now in Romans chapter 2, we also see a rejection of God and a focus on self. But this time, instead of self-worship, it's self-righteousness. Basically, this attitude says, well, I don't really need your gift of righteousness, God, because I can sort of manufacture my own. I'm doing very good. So the Jewish religious person also says, I don't need God because I'm going to keep my list. I'm going to check off my list, and I'm going to do all these great things. And so these two extremes, the self-worship and the self-righteousness, I think are best laid out for us in the parable of the prodigal son. We studied it last year when we went through the parables. But our Lord Jesus, him Christ, Lord Jesus Christ himself gave us the best possible illustration for what Paul is doing as he contrasts the Gentiles in Romans 1 and now the Pharisees in Romans 2. We call it the parable of the prodigal son, but this parable actually has two sons. One must look at both to really see the heart of God. So the illustration in this parable was just the best possible analogy that I could come up, one, come up with that was possible for understanding and contrasting Romans 1 and Romans 2. The parable of the prodigal son, or the parable of the two sons, as perhaps we should call it, is found over in Luke chapter 15. And you may or may not remember it, but let's just kind of go through to familiarize ourselves with what happens. So this, this father has two sons, the older and the younger, and the younger son basically comes to his father and he says, give me my inheritance now. I don't want to wait for you to die. I, I'm tired of waiting. I'm tired of being stuck here on the farm with you in this deadbeat podunk town. I want to go live my life. I want to go find myself. I want to find freedom. I want to find self-fulfillment. And so the father lets him go. He doesn't put his foot down or argue or, or try to make him stay or, or deny him. He gives him his inheritance, and he lets him go. And as we can expect, misery kind of unfolds. Now, the, the son has a great hi-ho time initially, runs through all that money. He's very popular, has lots of friends, money to spend, parties to throw. There's all sorts of carousing. We find later that he has prostitutes, all sorts of fun. But the money runs out, and suddenly he finds himself in bondage. Not, not the freedom that he thought, but it actually led to bondage to sin. And he finds himself starving to death, living with the pigs, eating what the pigs eat. He has hit rock bottom. And I think for a Jewish boy to be living with the pigs and eating what the pigs eat was probably the, the worst of, the, of, of all possible things. And finally, this younger brother, there he is, starving to death, penniless, shamed, just living a miserable life, thinking through what he's done and where he is and how that freedom didn't really make him as free as he thought. And he finally comes to his senses. And the thought comes to him, I should go home. 
Even the servants that work for my daddy eat better than I eat and have a place to sleep. They're way better off than me. And he, he's convicted of his choices. And he realizes, I don't have any, any right to ask for anything. And so he starts to rehearse his speech of what he's going to say to his dad when he gets home. And, he, and he's got it all pulled together, what he's going to say. He's going to come to his father and he's going to say, Father, uh, I have sinned against heaven and against you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He acknowledges his sin. He owns it. He acknowledges his unworthiness. He expects nothing. He, know, he knows that he deserves nothing. And in human terms, what would we expect a father to do when a son comes crawling back? A father who had been rejected and stiff-armed. A father who had essentially been told, I wish you were dead. I want out of here. Well, that father might stay sitting behind his desk with his arms folded. He might say, yeah, I knew you'd come crawling back. You, I, I, you, you made your bed and you got to lay in it. You figured out what's what. I guess you figured out dad was right. This better be good. You better do some groveling if you want to come back here and live under my roof. No, there was none of that. The father did none of that. He said none of that. In fact, the son didn't meet him in the house behind the desk in a formal setting. The father was watching for him. The father was waiting for him. And when he was a long way off, the father went running to him. He was ecstatic to see him. And his son that he had been clearly praying for and watching for if he saw him and ran out to greet him. And he's so excited and he won't even let the son finish his speech that he's rehearsed. He, my son is home. My son has come back. My son that was dead is alive. And he runs and he grabs a robe and puts it around him. He doesn't make him take a bath first. He doesn't have to clean himself up to come home. Put the robe around him. Put that ring that shows sonship and family connection on his finger. Kill the fatted calf. Throw a party. Tell everybody to come. My son has come home. It's wonderful news. It's fabulous news. It's worthy of a great celebration the father says, the son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He's lost and he was lost and he's found and they began to celebrate. Don't you see? That's exactly what happens when a lost person finds Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful picture. The one who is dead is alive. The one who was lost has been found. And there's a party that takes place in heaven and a party that should take place on, her, on earth when a lost person accepts Jesus Christ as their Savior. Some of you are longing for that party. All of us have someone that we are praying for. Every single one of us knows someone that needs to come to Jesus, someone that needs to wake up. And we can pray exactly what happens to that one that we're praying for is what happened to the prodigal son, that they come to their senses, that they wake up and realize where they are. So ladies, let's keep hoping and let's keep praying and let's keep longing and let's keep looking. Let's keep our eyes looking and keep ready because at any moment we might need to kill the fatted calf or, or at least throw a roast in the oven, right? And have our own party when that prodigal that we are praying for comes back. Let's not give up hope because as long as there's life, with God all things are possible. We call it the story of the prodigal son, but remember there's two sons in the story. That older brother, he's the one that's been so faithful, he never left home. He's out there in the fields doing his job, working hard. He'd been out there early. He comes back in late. And when he comes back and approaches the house, he realizes something's going on. He hears the music and the party and hears the people. And he's, he says, what's happening? And he asks the servant. And the servant says, 
your brother is back. Your brother's come home and your, your dad has killed the fatted calf and, and thrown a party. But the older brother refused to go in. And so the father goes out to, to talk with him and he pleads for him, come on into the party. But he refuses. And his angry, belligerent response is found in Luke 15, 29 to 30. Here's what the older son says to his father. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you have never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. He says, I've slaved and I've worked. Do you hear the self-righteousness? He's rattling off the list of everything that he has done. He says, you owe me. You owe me. It's like it's his wages. He's coming to his father as his employer, not as his father. He doesn't refer to his brother as his brother, but he says, this son of yours. He wants no affiliation. This is a, a legalistic uh, attitude, but it's not one of, that d- denotes relationship or love. So when we compare and contrast these two brothers that Jesus lays out for us in this parable, we see a younger brother who was full of himself, consumed with finding himself and fulfilling himself, who ended up in bondage, false freedom. He was wanting to be free, but it was, it was false freedom. He was lost, but he came to his senses. He woke up. He returned home, and he was loved, and he was welcomed, and he was restored. And then there's the older brother, who on the surface looks like the good and faithful brother, also consumed with self, also eaten up with pride. You know, the thing about older brothers, and also older sisters, is that hyperactivity on the outside usually is a cover-up for no small degree of anxiety on the inside. The more anxious they are, the more they perform, and the more they question, am I enough? And then the more they believe that they are enough, and that they deserve more, and that they really are more. They start to believe their own press. The first century parable has a lot of applicable 21st century older brother types and older brother sister types. It has a lot of application for us. And make no mistake, ladies, we we may be the baby of the family or we may be an only child, but we can still be an older sister or an older brother. We might pride ourselves in our sacrifices as we consult our church lady checklist. What are the things that we sort of make ourselves feel very good about? We might say, well, I teach Sunday school. Um, I tithe. I call my mother at least once a week. I carry out at least three casseroles every month to someone who is sick or or to the funeral dinner or, or whatever. So I use my kitchen for God's glory. We never forget Pastor Appreciation Month. I check my kids' homework. I'm a good mom, and, and I don't feed my kids fast food. I do a home-cooked meal a few times a week. I fill a shoebox every year, and when we do eat out, we eat a Chick-fil-A because that's God's fast food, right? <laughs> there are all sorts of things that we might tick off on our list to make ourselves feel good and righteous. The 21st century older sister is the one that her, her high school class reunion, she's secretly kind of smug when she learns that the homecoming queen is now an alcoholic or that the class president is divorced or the captain of the volleyball team is in rehab. We church ladies can very easily become 
older sisters. Protected, the way that we are protected from going there is by keeping our eyes on Jesus, not looking at where we are on the line and looking down to the left or right and finding somebody that that makes us feel smug or self-righteous or superior. We have to get vertical. We have to look up and see that before God, we're, we're all bad girls. We've got to protect ourselves by keeping the gospel in 2020. And I'm just not just talking about the year here. We need to keep the gospel in perspective. We need an accurate view of the gospel. The gospel is for Jews and Gentiles. The gospel is for religious and non-religious, moral and immoral. And the gospel, ladies, is for good girls and it's for bad girls. The rule rejectors and the rule keepers both need the gospel. Both need to pry their eyes off their hearts, off of self, whether it's self-righteousness or self-righteousness, self-fulfillment or self-righteousness. The real hero of the parable of the two brothers is the same hero who is the hero for us today, and that is God Almighty. The father in this story is a beautiful picture of God Almighty. Releasing us to go, not forcing us to to stay and obey him, but letting us make our own choice to leave and do whatever we want to do, but always watching and always waiting and always orchestrating events allowing us to return, offering unconditional forgiveness when we repent, but never forcing us to obey him. He celebrates our return. This father went out to meet the younger son, remember. The father also went out to meet the older brother and said, please come in. He pleaded. He gave every opportunity. The the hard part about Luke 15 is that it ends with the older brother still outside, still angry and stubborn and unrepentant. And that feels a little unsatisfactory to me. I'm that girl that my litmus test for any movie is a happy ending. I don't, I don't like to watch movies with a sad ending. And this, yet the parable of the prodigal son, the parable of the two sons, just sort of ends, and we don't really know what happens to that older brother. But the heart of God is clear. The heart of the person that Paul is trying to speak to in, in Romans chapter 2, this is the older brother type that he's talking to when he says in Romans chapter 2, do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Not only do younger brothers need to repent, but so do older brothers and older sisters. God's kindness has a purpose, and that purpose is repentance. Just as the father in the parable was kind and tolerant and patient with his sons, so is God kind and tolerant and patient with us, with younger sisters and with older sisters, with younger brothers and with older brothers. And so I ask you, have you repented? Have you repented for salvation? Were you that prodigal, living for yourself, putting yourself first, worshiping yourself, and then coming finally back to have a relationship with the Father? Some of you have a powerful prodigal testimony. And I'm guessing that if you are here in this Bible study, that you are no longer a prodigal because you're hungry for the truth of God. You may have a powerful testimony of coming back. But it's possible that you know people. I'm sure you know prodigals. It's possible that someone may be even listening to this recording that's still living that prodigal lifestyle. That someone who ran away from God, rejected their 
evangelical upbringing, someone who knows the truth of scripture, maybe it's your child, your daughter, your son, maybe it's a sibling or a parent, someone that you love that knows the truth and just needs to listen to the truth. You know that, that verse that says, train up a child in the way she go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. When I was a young mom, I read that verse, and I took that as some sort of a guarantee, that if I did this, then God would do that, and it would all be okay. But now, all these years later, I've come to realize that what that verse really means is that if we train our children, if we raise them in a Christian home, and we give them a steady diet of God's Word, and we ensure that they memorize Scripture and they know it, and we take them to the church... God's word is in their hearts and in their minds. And no matter how much they want to go, no, 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 they can't not hear it. In those situations, some of the choices they're making, out of nowhere, that verse, the Holy Spirit's going to retrieve it. It's going to bring it back up to the forefront of their hearts and minds. They cannot escape the truth. They can't erase what they know to be true. And so we can pray, we can keep praying that God's Holy Spirit will retrieve that truth and that they will finally get sick and tired of living with the pigs, that they will finally wake up and come to their senses. And when they do, we need to be like that loving father in the parable, running out to meet them, welcoming them home, throwing the party, no condemnation, so happy. There are a lot of us here that can't wait to throw that party. But there's also some repentance, not just for prodigals, but for those older sisters, those Pharisee types, those self-righteous who are so proud of their morality, checking the boxes, so proud of all that's offered up to God. And so to those people, we might ask the same question, do you need to repent? Do you need to acknowledge that you have to come to God with empty hands? Not your list of what you've done. Not your checklist that you've checked off. You bring nothing. It's faith plus nothing. So the question for the older sisters is, do you know him? Are you sure that you know him? And when asked, have you repented, is that even a question that confuses you? Only the gospel can save us. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. It's a righteousness that comes by faith in Christ alone. It was the message for the Gentiles and for the Jews in the first century, for younger brothers and older brothers then, and it's the same message that still holds true today. The woman of God has been saved by faith alone, not by her works, not by checking off her list. Is that your reality? And are you sure that that's your reality? Be sure today. And if you are not absolutely 100% sure, do not put your head on the pillow tonight without being sure. I would be honored and delighted to have that conversation with you after class today. Your leader would love, your small group table leader would love to have that conversation with you today. Remove any doubt. Be absolutely sure. Know that you know that your salvation is by faith in Christ alone. If you have acknowledged your sin, your complete inability to save yourself, and have placed your faith in Christ alone, then your position before God is eternal. And nothing and no one can ever change that. You are his. Your name is in the book. Nothing can change that. No one can erase it. Your position is secure, but your condition can shift. I love how Miles Stanford contrasts our position and our condition. 
He says this, It is faith in the facts of our position that gives us the daily benefits of growth in our condition. So position is eternal and unchanging. We belong to him. But our condition, well, that grows and changes and it varies. We take detours. We make U-turns. We make sinful choices. But we repent and we come back. Our position means that we are his that we have been saved by faith in Christ. But our condition means that our focus can shift. We can be distracted by our feelings and circumstances, by temptations to sin, by falling into sin. A daily Bible-centered focus on our position, on the gospel, will bring growth in our condition. Part of that growth process is repentance. And so I ask you, do you need to repent? If your position is secure for salvation, your repentance is still important for your condition, for your sanctification, for your growing in Christ. And in fact, ladies, I'm convinced that daily repentance is the mark of a growing, healthy woman of God. Our initial repentance is for salvation, and that brings us into the kingdom of God as a little baby believer. But ongoing repentance owning it when we mess up, seeking restoration, bringing our sin and confessing it before God, asking forgiveness from our husbands or our sisters or our children or whoever. God has made me apologize to a clerk at Penny's before when I was rude to her. But, but repentance is healthy for us. It's good for us. And it, it sanctifies us. It refines us. We grow from little babies to toddlers to adolescents and finally to maturity. And I think that repentance has to be a vital part of that if we want to grow up and be mature women of God and not just little girls in God. The word kindness, I looked it up in the dictionary, and the, the dictionary definition is benevolent, considerate, helpful, and generous. When we think of kind people, we think of those who are just a blessing to others, and we say, you're so kind. You know, that was so kind of you. And we think about sort of uh, something that's sort of an over-the-top act of, of generosity. But those outward behaviors might sometimes even have mixed motives. When we are kind to someone, is it motivated by guilt? Are we trying to make up for what we didn't do or, you know, something that we, when we were short or mean or, or did something unkind and so we're going to kind of earn some little merits by by making an act of kindness to make up for the unkind thing we did. Sometimes our outward behaviors are are selfish. Maybe we just want somebody else to like us. And so we're going to go over the top to kind of uh, ingratiate ourselves with them. Or or maybe we just want to check the list, prove that I'm a good person. So you see, our, our kindness can sometimes have mixed motives. But God's motive for kindness in this passage is very clear. God's motive for kindness is repentance. More than meeting a physical need, when God walks out and releases kindness, it's to bring on spiritual change. So it challenges me to consider how could I release God-inspired kindness to lead another person to repentance? That's an interesting thought. Hang with me here. When you place kindness and repentance in the same sentence, it suggests that perhaps the greatest opportunity for the release of kindness is when I have been wronged. Because God's putting kindness and repentance in the same context here. So if we want to follow God's example and we want to release kindness 
that can actually lead someone to repentance, we want to kill them with kindness or convict them with kindness, then perhaps the greatest opportunity for us as women of God to release kindness is when we've been disrespected or when we've been mistreated or when we've been hurt or neglected. And i got to tell you, on our own, that's pretty much impossible. That's a Holy Spirit-inspired assignment. But God always equips us for what he calls us to do. Kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. It's produced by the Holy Spirit that lives in us. So if you are a woman of God, his kindness has led you to repent. It led you to acknowledge your sin, to repent of your sin, to receive his gift of righteousness. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And so we can then conclude that the woman of God has received God's kindness. It was his kindness that led you to repentance. And receiving it then should also prompt us to release God's kindness to others. And I think the greater the awareness of God's kindness to us, the greater our desire to release kindness to others. Because our goal should also be for those in our world that need to know him, to be convicted and come to him for, in saving faith. It's time for us to wise up. It's time for us to not allow the enemy to destroy or undermine our relationships because it's so easy for us to just go off course and become those older sisters, distracted by our rights and what we're entitled to and what we deserve. But only in setting those distractions aside can we fully seize every opportunity that God brings to us to bring glory to him. So no matter where we fall on that COVID continuum or wherever you believe that you fall on the good girl, bad girl line, I hope that Romans 2 convinces you that because of the gospel, the bad news is that we're all bad. But the good news is that in Christ, we're all declared good. That we are all declared good because of the gospel, because of Jesus Christ. And because of that, we are declared righteous. We're declared righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. And our life of growing in Christ should be characterized by one of continual repentance in response to his very kind conviction. Our position of righteousness will never lead us to prideful morality or smugness or self-righteousness, but grateful humility. The message of the gospel is for selfish sinners, those younger brothers and sisters indulging in sin, and then suddenly waking up one day and finding themselves enslaved by it. That's the message of Romans 1, 18 to 32 from last time. And the message of the gospel is also for the self-righteous Pharisees, the older brothers and sisters who think they can impress God by their good deeds. And that's the message of Romans 2. The message of the gospel is that all of us, all of us are so bad and so sinful that the only way we can get righteousness is to have it imputed to us by a gift. How is God calling you today to a deeper awareness of, a deeper, deeper appropriation of the gospel in your life? How is he calling you to celebrate the kindness that you have received, the kindness that you received to call you to salvation, and then the kindness as he continues to convict you and call you to repentance after you have been saved, to grow you in sanctification? And then how is he asking you to release that kindness, that he might use you in the lives of others in your world, that they too might hear and respond, how great and how good is our holy, righteous God? Let's pray to him now. Amen. Lord God Almighty, how grateful we are for the gospel. 
God, how grateful we are that it is your kindness that leads us to repentance. Father, you love, the, you love the Gentiles and you love the Jews in the first century. And we're so grateful that all these years later in the 21st century that you are unchanging, that you are ever faithful, that your word is true. We're grateful that you loved us as bad girls and you love us when we try to manufacture and pretend that we're good girls. We acknowledge that we're all bad girls, but that praise God that in the person of Jesus Christ, we are declared good, we are declared righteous in you. Father, would you let us walk out that and live that in gratefulness to bring you glory because you are great and you are good, and it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.